0: Last week, I shot a message to the elders, admitting that after a considerable amount of time studying this week's text, I'd come to the same conclusion Martin Luther did when he preached this same text. So if you will bear with me, I will begin this sermon with the words Martin Luther used to begin his sermon in the year 1522. Here's what he said about 1 Peter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle means. At first, the words give the impression that Christ preached to the spirits who didn't believe many years ago when Noah was building the ark. I do not understand this, nor can I explain it, nor has anyone ever explained it. Well, that's exactly where I landed. This is a strange text indeed. And really, that's the take of nearly every scholar that I read on this text. It's just difficult to interpret. One scholar lists six major theories of interpretation and 180 combinations. And as if the text itself wasn't challenging enough, we have six baptisms this morning. We praise the Lord for that. But I was asked to keep the sermon brief. So this is going to be really interesting and fun, at least for you. Um, That said, I think what you'll find is that the main point that Peter is making to his readers is crystal clear. But before we go there, let's get our bearings. This text doesn't stand by itself, and so understanding its context will help us navigate the more difficult parts. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter to Christians living in exile. They're scattered across Asia Minor, living within the Roman society, which was largely pagan. As you can imagine, their neighbors weren't fond of their worldview, so they're being slandered and pressured to conform to their former way of life. They're suffering because of their faith. Peter writes this letter then to fortify them in their suffering. Now, last week, Josh walked us through verses 13 through 17. If you suffer for doing what is good, you will be blessed. Do not fear, do not fear those who cause your suffering, and don't fear the suffering itself, rather fear God. Now that kind of Christian living gets noticed. So Peter says, be prepared to gently and respectfully explain the hope that is in you when you're asked. And that's the context for this morning's text. The title, though, of this sermon is from a favorite poem of mine, Light Shining Out of Darkness. It was written by William Cooper, that brilliant but depressed 18th century friend of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. Here's the verse. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. That's the message of Peter to these exiles. If you suffer for doing what is good, you will be blessed. The suffering you so much dread will break in blessings upon your head. In verse 18 now, Peter gives these exiles the foundation for that fresh courage. Let's start reading in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Take courage, He says, by looking to the suffering of your Lord. This is your anchor This is the anchor that will keep your soul secure during the storms of your life in exile. Christ suffered. Don't rush past those two words. Hear them afresh. Christ suffered. The creator of the universe, clothed in frail human flesh, Born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. That is your anchor in the storm. And that's the mind-staggering centerpiece of Peter's message, of his entire letter. He reminds his readers of it over and over. I want to give you a taste of this Chapter 1, verse 11, the prophets of old, he said, inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Chapter 2, verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example and two verses later, when he suffered, he did not threaten. Chapter 4, verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, you arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice in far as you share Christ's sufferings. And chapter 5, verse 1, so I exhort you elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings Christ. The suffering of Christ is central to Peter's message. Indeed, it is the central message of the entire Bible. From the bruising of the heel of the Son of Eve in Genesis 3 to the image of Christ in Revelation as a lamb that was slain, the suffering of Christ is the epicenter of Scripture. And so it must be in your thinking. If you are to have true and lasting comfort in your time of suffering, as you let that truth sink in, that the creator of the universe voluntarily suffered, consider what Peter says about that. He gives us three aspects of Christ's suffering. Actually, he gives us more. We're only going to cover three aspects that he gives us here. First, the suffering of Christ was once for all. For Christ also suffered once for sins. This whisks the reader back in time to the old covenant with Israel when priests from the tribe of Levi would make bloody sacrifices day after day and year after year. Those were but a shadow of the good things to come. Those sacrifices were not the reality. They could never make perfect those who would draw near because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But they were a continual reminder of sin, of the need for a bloody death to atone for sins, and of of the enduring promise of a new covenant, one that was better and built upon better promises. Those old covenant sacrifices pointed to Christ who has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. The suffering of Christ was complete. His suffering was decisive and his suffering was once for all. Aspect number two, Christ suffered for sins. These two words are loaded with substance. First, to be clear, Christ didn't suffer for his own sins. This man was sinless. He was perfectly righteous, as you'll see in the very next phrase, which means that his suffering, which here includes his death, was for the sins of others. He suffered for the sins of his elect. That's Peter's term for the believers to whom he addressed this letter. Secondly, the fact that he suffered for sin tells you that sin demands punishment. Indeed, the all-consuming wrath of God is against all sin and all who commit sin. His wrath is against every descendant of Adam. And yet we are sinners all. Sinners by birth and sinners by choice. And we prove that every day of our lives, which makes us an enemy of God. Because he is holy, and perfect holiness cannot tolerate unholiness. And God's wrath, G.I. Packer wrote, is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. This is righteous anger, the right reaction of moral perfection in the Creator toward moral perversion in the creature. God is not just, that is, He does not act in a way that is right. He does not do what is proper to a judge unless he inflicts upon all all sin and wrongdoing the penalty that it deserves. That leaves us all in a heap of trouble. But thanks be to God. He is not only holy and just, he is love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So He suffered once. He suffered for sins. And aspect number three, He suffered in place of sinners. His suffering was substitutionary. Christ, the righteous one, suffered for the unrighteous. The holy justice of God demands that His wrath be poured out upon all who would defy Him by their sin. And the fitting punishment for defying an infinitely holy God is death and endless punishment. It must be so if God be infinitely holy and just. Oh, this is the uncomfortable doctrine of hell. Oh, we don't like to talk about that, do we? But we cannot understand hell unless we understand how holy and how just our God is. But Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. In your place, the righteous for the unrighteous. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is, he died in the place of sinners. He was your substitute. He suffered in your place, he died in your place. And that, brothers and sisters, is the pinnacle of grace. God's overflowing of love to hellbound sinners. Now, why would he do that? Verse 18 Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And here Peter presents the purpose. This is the why that he might bring us to God. That's grace. And I owe this insight to John Piper. Peter could have given these exiles any number of reasons for Christ's substitutionary suffering and death. The benefits of what happened at the cross are vast. Freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the wrath of God, freedom from the guilt of sin, freedom from the power of sin, a right standing before a holy God, justification, justification. And all of those benefits will last forever. It is life eternal that His sufferings secured. And all of those things are gloriously true. And Peter could have mentioned any of them, but he didn't. Instead, he simply said that Christ suffered that He might bring us to God. Peter is striking right at the very heart. And here's why I say that. Everyone wants freedom from the penalty of sin. That doesn't make you a Christian. No one wants to go to hell. No one wants to be under the weight of the guilt of sin. And everybody wants to go to heaven. But do They want God himself. Do they want the giver or do they just want his gifts? Do you want God himself as your only portion? That strikes at the heart because this is a matter of the heart. My flesh and my heart may fail is Asaph's song. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lovers of God, this is how Christ brings you to your love. It is by virtue of the suffering of His Son. Now, that's the why. Now, how did He accomplish that? Peter gives two answers. Still in verse 18, for Christ also suffered that He might bring us to God, one, by being put to death in the flesh, two, by being made alive in the Spirit. Christ brings believers to God by His death and by His resurrection. In this case, Peter is using the phrase, in the flesh, to signal the realm or the plane of existence in which Christ died. He died in the physical that is the visible or the fleshly realm. But he was made alive in the spiritual realm. I take it that way because of what follows and because of how Peter uses that exact phrase later in this letter, namely in chapter 4, verse 6, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. What's clear is that Christ brings believers to God by His death and by His resurrection. Now, before we move on, to verse 19, let me ask one more question, and I don't believe it's going to be on the outline. I've asked why, I've asked how, and Peter's given us wonderful answers. But without being irreverent, let me ask a third question about verse 18. So what? So what? How how exactly, like seriously, Tate, how exactly... Is the suffering of Christ related to the suffering of exiles? How is it related to your life as an exile living in Clark County? How is it related to your life as a believer when you suffer for doing what is good? Let me offer three brief answers. One, the suffering of Christ once for all For the sins of sinners puts the love of God on display for the suffering exile to rehearse, to rejoice in, and to take comfort from. I think of believing wives suffering in marriages to unbelieving or lazy, ambivalent husbands. You're the one trying to hold the family together. You're the one leading spiritually. You're the one praying with the kids before school and before bed. You're the one teaching them the Word and making sure that everyone gets out the door on time for church. You're stressed out and you're weary. Sister, you are suffering for doing good. And Peter would have you look to the sufferings of Christ for your comfort. Rehearse those truths. Marvel over what Christ endured for the sake of His enemies, for your sake. Marvel over His love for sinners. Marvel over His love for you. And then turn to a passage like Romans 8 and immerse yourself in the comfort that comes from seeing the love of God on display in the sufferings of Christ. Who is to condemn Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Did you catch that? Those are the two answers that Peter gave to the how question. How did Christ accomplish bringing you to God? Answer, by His death and by His resurrection, comfort yourself with that. And then ask Paul's question, who shall separate you from the love of Christ. Ponder the depth of his love for sinners, a love that was willing to suffer to the death. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can an unbelieving or lazy husband separate you from that love? Paul answers, no. In all these things, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. Oh, Paul rests on the foundation of the sufferings and the resurrection of Christ. Nothing, he says, in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. So answer number one, the suffering of Christ once for all puts the love of God on display for you to rehearse, to rejoice in, and to take great comfort from. Answer number two, the suffering of Christ puts the sovereignty of God on display for the suffering exile again to recount, to rejoice in, and to take comfort from. Consider this. The sufferings of Christ were no accident. It was God's sovereign plan. Like the disciples prayed in Acts 4, the suffering of Jesus at the hands of Herod and Pilate and Roman soldiers and Jews was exactly what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. And we're talking here about the most heinous crime ever committed in human history, the perfectly innocent Son of God was nailed to a Roman cross and slaughtered like an animal. That was according to God's hand and according to God's plan. And it was predestined for the glory of God and for the everlasting joy of His people. If He did that, you can trust Him with whatever suffering. You have. He has a good and perfect plan for your suffering through divorce, through the loss of your job, the slander of those who you thought were your friends. God is working 10,000 gloriously good things for His glory and for your joy in your suffering. He is working all things together for your good. Yes, I am speaking only to believers here. He is working all things together for your good. He is conforming you to the image of His suffering Son. And you can bank on this. Your momentary afflictions are preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Answer number three. The suffering of Christ once for all also puts the justice of God on display for the suffering exiles to Rehearse, to rejoice in, and to take comfort from. This one's a little different, but it leads us into the next two verses. Whatever you're suffering at the hands of men, consider the justice of God in the suffering of Christ. Sin is so serious a matter to God that He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. In the end, He will make all things right. Right. That is precisely why believers do not slander when they're slandered. While they don't repay evil for evil, that's why believers, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He didn't threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see how Peter did that? He leaned on a just God in his suffering. So then that's my answer to the so what question, that in your suffering you may rehearse, rejoice in and take great comfort from the love of God the sovereignty of God and the justice of God that is on display in blinding brilliance in the suffering of your Lord. Now, that's the main point of this morning's sermon. So, whatever you do, in the next two verses, don't get your brains in a knot and forget the main point. It's so tempting Christ was put to death in the visible fleshly realm but made alive in the invisible spiritual realm. Let's read verses 19 and 20. In the spiritual realm in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight, Were brought safely through water. Now, I'm going to give you an explanation, well, an interpretation that I think makes the best sense of the evidence. I am not going to give you six theories or 180 combinations. This is the view that I hold today, um, but please understand I hold this lightly. As I've studied this text, the, but for the proverb, Proverbs 18, 17, keeps coming to mind. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So I want to state my case before you come and examine me, because it might seem right. Even this morning, I was going back and forth between two different, very plausible interpretations of this text. Uh, but I came back to this one. Um, So, here's a summary from a recent commentator of the position that I want to present. In the spiritual realm of existence, Christ went and preached through Noah to those who are now spirits in the prison of hell. And if we could get the whole verse up there, it would be helpful. I want you to follow this train of thinking in the spiritual realm, the the realm of existence, Christ went and preached through Noah to those who are now spirits in the prison of hell. This happened when they formally disobeyed, when the patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, let's test that by the text. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Peter's doing two things here. One, he is still encouraging exiles to suffer like Christ. Remember, that's the context. And two, he's introducing his next thought, which is going to be about baptism, which seems very fitting today. So he says that in the spiritual realm, Christ went and preached. That's the same word as proclaimed. It's just a different translation of the same word. Now, to whom did Christ preach? This is a difficult question. He preached to the spirits in prison. and These are humans who were alive during the time of Noah, but now they are dead. They are now spirits imprisoned in hell. Verse 20, these spirits are now in hell because they formerly did not obey. And when did that happen? It happened back when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So, here's how one commentator puts the whole thing together. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, speaking through Noah at the time before the flood, preached to the godless people of that day. They did not listen, so their bodies were killed in the flood, and their spirits are today in hell, which is God's prison for those who die in unbelief. Now, here are some strengths of that position. First, Peter himself calls Noah a herald or a preacher of righteousness. That's in 2 Peter 2.5. Number two, contrary to what you might see in some common commentaries, the word spirit is often used of human spirits. Hebrews 12.23 is, is very convincing. I mention that particular strength because one of the competing views is that Christ preached not to humans who died in the flood but are now spirits but he preached to evil spirits. Number 3. These spirits are said to are, are these spirits are said to be in prison because they disobeyed. In Genesis 6 there is no indication of evil spirits disobeying during that time. But clearly humans were living in rebellion against God during that time. That's the whole reason for God's judgment. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, not evil spirits, was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Number four, Peter says that this disobedience happened when God's patience waited. Now, the idea of God's Patiently waiting for evil spirits is foreign to Scripture. And yet it is often used of God's disposition toward disobedient humans. Number five, this view seems to make the best sense of the time indicators. Words like formerly and when. Number six, Peter claims, Peter's claim that Christ preached repentance through Noah. Should come as no surprise to the reader. He's already explained to the exiles that the Spirit of Christ was at work in the prophets of old. That was, we saw that in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And number seven, this view fits well with the context and the flow of Peter's argument and speaks to the specific situation of suffering exiles. Now, Dr. Wayne Grudem gives a helpful summary of how this message, how this passage fits. In its context, he says, this passage functions in three ways. One, it encourages believers to bear witness boldly in the midst of hostile unbelievers, just as Noah did. Number two, it assures them that though they are few, like Noah and his family, God will surely save them. And number three, to remind them of the certainty of final judgment and Christ's ultimate triumph over all the forces of evil which oppose them. We'll see that in next week's text. So all in all, I think this view makes the most sense. But I could be wrong about all of that. I am aware of the weaknesses of this view For each of those weaknesses, of course, there are reasonable answers, but again, the one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. So let me close by turning your attention back to Peter's main point. I do not want us to lose sight of this. Peter here gives his readers a rock-solid foundation for confidence in suffering. They can take fresh courage by looking to the suffering of their lord he suffered once for all he suffered for sins and he suffered in the place of sinners i don't know how you're suffering today a broken marriage a broken car or a broken toe i don't know i do know that as believers you're called to suffer for doing good of course What that means, though, is that none of us are immune to suffering. For those here who have not yet believed, who have not put your faith in Christ's once for all suffering for your sins, please come talk with me. I would be delighted to introduce you to that glorious reality and help you find true and lasting comfort in your suffering. For my brothers and sisters, Believers, when suffering strikes, and it will, in whatever form it strikes, I do hope that you will turn to this rather strange text and drink deeply from what is clear in it. Rehearse the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice in them and take great comfort from them. O oh, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so thankful to you for your words through your servant Peter to these exiles because they speak so clearly to us today. Father, there are many here who are suffering, most of them suffering quietly. There's pain. Father, I pray that that through Your Word, they would be encouraged to look to the sufferings of Your Son, that they would recount them, and they would rejoice in those truths, and they would find much comfort in them. Oh, Father, help us help us to do that. Help us to live in such a way in the midst of suffering so that others ask a reason for the hope that is in us. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.